in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, June 25th, from the hollow of a high peak in the Wolf Mountains, Lieutenant Varnum awaited the first light of dawn to reveal the wide valley of the Little Bighorn below. With him were several crow scouts, the crows having their own axe to grind with the Sioux, who were knowingly occupying crow lands in this section of today's Montana, known then as the Greasy Grass, prime hunting land for buffalo, deer, and elk. Barnum's mission? To determine the location and strength of the Sioux encampments in the valley. Barnum squinted through his spyglass, but could make out little. He blamed it on lack of sleep and an overabundance of trail dust in his eyes. All he could see was an empty green valley drained of contour. The Crow Scouts saw much more. Speaking through his interpreter, Mitch Boyer, they urged him to look for worms on the grass. This would be the Indian pony herds. They saw thousands of ponies, the sign of a very large encampment. Barnum still couldn't see anything, but he would take their word for it. What all of them could see was the columns of smoke now rising from the eastern side of the divide behind them. Smoke being made by their own troops, starting fires for breakfast. The Crow Scouts were outraged with the stupidity of this. They asked Varnum if Custer wanted the Indians to know of their presence. Varnum had no answer. Around 5 a.m., Varnum sent two Arikara Scouts, Red Star and Bull, back to Custer with a written message indicating that they'd seen, quote, a tremendous village on the Little Bighorn. As he approached Custer's campsite, Red Star swung his horse, first left, then right, to indicate that they'd seen signs of hostiles. He was greeted by a proud Arikara elder named Stabbed, who said, My son, this is no small thing you have done. Red Star was immediately joined by Custer, his brother Tom, Bloody Knife, and interpreter Fred Gruard. Custer received the written message, conversed in sign language with Bloody Knife, then mounted Dandy and rode to the camps of his twelve companies, alerting every senior officer, with the exception of Benteen, that they had spotted City Bull's camp and that they would soon be attacking. Custer had ridden by Benteen's camp without stopping. During the long and grueling march toward the eastern slope of Wolf Mountain, he had given Benteen the most troublesome mules, knowing it would slow Benteen and his three companies down and enable the remaining nine companies to move faster. This left Benteen and his men six miles behind the main force in an area filled with gullies where ambush would have been easy for any war parties. Benteen and his men caught up late that night, however, tired but uncontested. Just another day in Custer's army for Benteen. In truth, according to most accounts, Sitting Bull's people were not looking for war. They were looking for a peaceful resolution to their current troubles with the whites. Years later, several Indians told cavalryman Hugh Scott, if Custer had come close and asked for a counsel instead of an attack, he could have led them all to an agency without a fight. How true this is, no one will ever know. But one thing is certain, Custer was not there for a peace parlay. As the regiment left the western slope of Wolf Mountain behind them and emerged onto the open grassy plain, Custer decided to split his forces, a move that any freshman at West Point can tell you is a grave mistake. Never divide your forces when facing superior numbers. Custer seemed to be stubbornly clinging to his own estimate 
that he could only be facing less than 1,500 warriors, despite his scouts telling him that the number could be three to four times as many. His biggest worry was not that he would be outnumbered, but that the Sioux might try to run, and this was the reason he ordered Major Benteen to take a battalion of three companies to the south of them as they headed west toward Sitting Bull's village, which was about 15 miles distant. Benteen questioned Custer's decision by saying, Hadn't we better keep the force together, General? If this is a big camp, as they say, we'll need every man we have. You have your orders, responded Custer. But Benteen wasn't done. He was being ordered out into hostile territory with just three companies of men, and one company was the smallest of the regiment. He wanted D Company, the largest company in the regiment, and commanded by Thomas Weir, who had once served under Benteen. Custer responded, Damn it to hell, Benteen! Take D Company, then! Custer then assigned Reno with three companies to continue along the opposite side of Sundance Creek, which they were following westward toward the Sioux camp. By 1 p.m., Benteen was headed toward a bluff, far out of sight from Custer and Reno's battalions, who were following trails that sometimes brought them within sight of each other, and more than often not. Custer had hoped that Benteen could, from that bluff, get a look at the Sioux village, which no one had seen yet. Only the large pony herd had been spotted so far. Custer was now realizing that the way this valley was laid out, with hills and bluffs and constant turns, it was nearly impossible to see anything at a distance. He sent a messenger to Benteen, telling him that if he couldn't see anything from the first bluff, to try others. This was pushing Benteen further and further to the left and south, away from Reno's and Custer's columns. Custer was wearing a wide gray hat with a red sash around his neck that fluttered in the breeze behind him. He had removed his fringed buckskin jacket, placing it behind his saddle. Reno could be seen in standard-issued blue cavalry uniform with a yellow stripe running down the side of his leg. But instead of the foldable felt hat worn by most officers, he was wearing a straw hat that he'd purchased from the sutler on the Yellowstone River a few days ago, and inside his pocket, and likely his saddlebags, a pint bottle of whiskey. Custer had spotted a small village, which he wanted to overrun before they fled, with hopes of being able to grab hostages that he could use as human shields. This strategy had worked for him in the past. He knew that the Sioux would be hesitant to ambush his column, fearing that their own people would be killed. His scouts still hadn't been able to give him any solid information on the Sioux camp ahead. It was a nerve-wracking situation, moving in the blind. Then, Fred Gruard, who had been off scouting and had seen large dust clouds, which he assumed were those of retreating Indians, returned with a message for Custer that the Indians were on the run. As it turned out, he was wrong, and his mistake had far-reaching consequences. That news was like throwing a bone to Custer, whose only thought from that point on was to attack before the Indians scattered. Not for a moment believing that the reported dust cloud might be Indians moving to attack, Custer was making sure he had all the exits covered. He believed that Benteen's battalion was now in a good position to cut off any escaping Indians trying to escape the Bighorn Valley to the southeast. Custer then ordered Reno to move forward and attack whatever Indians remained in the main village. As Reno stopped his column to water their horses and take a swig from his bottle, 
the scout Fred Bruard appeared with news that the Sioux were not running away. They were attacking. Reno, having no liking for Gruard, refused to pay any attention to him. Gruard wheeled his horse north and headed for Custer's column, but ran into Custer's adjutant, Lieutenant Cook, who ordered Gruard back to Reno's battalion, saying he would deliver the message to Custer himself. And he did, but it fell on deaf ears. Custer had just crested a rise and was looking down upon a huge village full of non-combatants, hundreds of white teepees, women, kids, and no warriors, and somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand ponies. He had finally managed to find Sitting Bull's village, and its inhabitants were oblivious to his presence. He would ride in, gather up as many hostages as he could, and then demand Sitting Bull's surrender. Sitting Bull would have no choice. It was 3.30 p.m. on June 25, 1876, and Custer was about to make history. But not the history he had expected. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Reno was also looking down at the village from a viewpoint across the Bighorn Valley, about three miles to the south of Custer. He had 150 soldiers and scouts in his command, three companies, and now was the time to attack. The soldiers took ten minutes to prepare, checking and tightening the cinches on their mounts, making sure their pistols and carbines were in good order and full of cartridges, and taking their proper places and numbers in rows of four. When it came time to fire their weapons, numbers one, two, and three would dismount, form a skirmish line, and fire, while the fours would hold on to their horses. There were two crow scouts whose job it was to steal the hostiles' horses, but considering the number of horses, that would be an impossibility. All they could do was create havoc, there were 25 Arikara scouts, among them Bloody Knife, Custer's favorite scout, who had a score to settle with one of the Sitting Bull's sub-chiefs, whose name was Gall. Bloody Knife's mother was Arikara, but his father was a hunk papa Sioux, same as Sitting Bull, and Bloody Knife had grown up with Sitting Bull and Gall, and many of the chiefs who would be there today. Gall had tormented Bloody Knife mercilessly, forcing him to leave the tribe to live with his mother's people. And when Bloody Knife returned at age 20 to see his father, Gall beat him badly again. A few years later, Gall came to trade at Fort Berthold on the Missouri River, and Bloody Knife led three soldiers to Gall's tent to arrest him, telling the soldiers that Gall was a dangerous hostile, which he was. Gall put up a fight and was bayoneted three times and left for dead. But Bloody Knife wasn't convinced that Gall was dead and was one second away from shooting Gall when a soldier pushed Bloody Knife's gun barrel away and led Gall out to lock him up. Gall survived the wounds and escaped. On this day, knowing where Gall's tent would be located in Sitting Bull's village, Bloody Knife made a vow to himself to find it if he was able to reach it. He never did. Still just out of sight of the Indian village, Reno took a swig from his bottle, which, probably due to the heat and adrenaline, was having a greater effect upon him than was good for his judgment, and half slurred out the word charge, to which his bugler responded. His men headed through a swirling cloud of dust for the southern end of Sitting Bull's camp, but as they came within sight of the huge village, Reno did something completely unexpected. He suddenly called a halt, and then a dismount, and prepared to fight on foot. 
To the right of their position was a grove of heavy timber, and the horse soldiers began moving the mounts toward that grove of timber. Before dismounting, a few of the soldiers had lost control of their horses, which were either making wide circles around Reno's men, or in some cases heading directly into the Sioux camp at a full gallop. All element of surprise had been lost. It is very possible that Reno stopped when he saw the actual size of the Indian camp and realized that any attack would likely result in the loss of his three companies. The woods on his right had partially blocked the view of the full camp. In golfer's parlance, picture the edge of a huge Indian camp at the end of a dogleg to the right. Once you cleared the trees, you got a full view of the valley and hundreds, maybe thousands of lodges stretching as far as the eye could see. The skirmish line contained 90 men, spaced about five yards apart, and they were moving forward on foot. After proceeding 100 yards, they stopped. The company flag bearers plunged their swallow-tailed guidons into the earth, and the flags were flying in the breeze. But there were no Indians within sight. They were still a quarter mile from the village, and yet they began firing. The Indian camp was immediately sent into a wild commotion. Women were calling for their children. Naked children were running from the river where they had been bathing back toward the circles of teepees. Initially, Sitting Bull, who was in camp and was not off hunting with the majority of the warriors, before the shooting began, interpreted Reno's sudden stop as a possible desire to talk. He handed a shield to his nephew, One Bull, and told him to take good bear boy to the soldiers to make peace. The two got within 30 feet of the soldiers when a sharpshooter's bullet smashed through both of Good Bear's legs. One bull took a lariat and looped it around Good Bear's chest and pulled him to safety. Sitting Bull mounted his favorite horse, which was hit immediately by two bullets. And at that point, he gave up any ideas of peace talks. At Reno's position, some men were still firing, some into the air, just burning ammunition needlessly ammunition they would need later. Custer, at least to a few of Reno's men, appeared to be attacking the village on the opposite side, although Reno said he never saw him. Custer had come down through Medicine Coulee draw either with the intention of feigning an attack or, upon seeing Reno's actions, pulling back to decide upon a better option. Reno had not charged the encampment, instead alerting the Indians and giving them time to set up some kind of resistance. After a lackluster 15 minutes of firing into nothing, Reno's men were suddenly jerked into reality as mounted Sioux, approximately 500 of them, suddenly appeared from a ravine located halfway between Reno's skirmish line and the village. They seemed to just rise up out of the ground. The Sioux warriors, men and women, having lost about a half dozen of their number, swung to the right after the first charge, having left a huge cloud of choking dust around the skirmish line. By now, other warriors, many on foot, and some of them Indian women, who were just as deadly, were entering the fight, slowly surrounding Reno's men. As the Sioux warriors began to close in on Reno, across the valley, and in the shelter of Wolf Mountain, Custer, realizing that Reno was not going to be of any help, was dealing with problems of his own. Mitch Boyer informed Custer that Reno had stopped short of the village and formed a skirmish line, which likely confirmed what Custer already knew and he told Custer that the village was twice as big as originally suspected. Custer realized now that he needed Benteen's three companies, and he called his bugler, Giovanni Martini, 
who is often referred to as John Martin in history accounts. Rattling off quick orders to him, Custer's adjutant, Lieutenant Cook, could see that Martini, an Italian immigrant, wasn't really understanding Custer's orders, and Custer was speaking fast. It took a moment to stop him and write the following words on a piece of notepaper. Benteen, come on, big village, be quick, bring packs. W.W. Cook, P.S., bring packs, bring ammo. Cook handed the paper to Martini, told him to ride fast and get to Benteen. Take the same trail that we came down. If you have time and there's no danger, come back. But otherwise, stay with your company. Martini was the last man to see Custer and his men alive. Meanwhile, Reno's skirmish line was falling apart. Guns were overheating, and soldiers were taking precious time to try to unjam shell pieces from the breaches of their rifles. The powers that be in the military had chosen Springfield's over Winchester repeaters, primarily because they were much better at long range. The disadvantages to the Springfields were that they were single shot. You had to load each cartridge into the breech whereas the Winchester could hold 15 in the magazine. The second disadvantage of the Springfields was that their barrels overheated easily, which melted the copper-based cartridges and often caused jams. With the Sioux on the attack, their mounts in the woods were now in danger, and Reno had to send a third of his men into the woods to protect them. And as those men left, others began to follow. Crazy Horse had been waiting for just this opportunity to charge, and did so. And at that point, Reno himself headed toward the woods, taking a last swig from his bottle before tossing it. It was a disorderly retreat that became a rout. Captain French called for the men to hold their ground, but it was too late. Out on the skirmish line, about 50 yards from the timber, Sergeant Miles O'Hara fell to the ground, badly wounded. He needed assistance, but no one was willing to go back for him. He cried out, For God's sakes, don't leave me! but the last of the skirmishes were headed for the safety of the trees. Sad to say, but the code of never leaving a man behind had not been drummed into the cavalry during the Indian Wars. On the western edge of the timber, there was a four-foot deep trench that served as a good spot from which to shoot, and a number of soldiers and scouts took a position there, exacting a deadly toll on the attacking Indians. But these men, one by one, now started moving deeper back into the woods, trying to find their horses. The last man to leave the ditch near the edge of the woods, a scout named Herendine, later reported that when he realized he was carrying on the fight alone, he followed the others into the woods and came upon a two-acre clearing where Reno and his men were mounting their horses. No retreat had been called. The Sioux warriors were approaching through the trees and the firing of their guns was getting deadly. One shot hit Bloody Knife, who was standing next to Reno in the back of his head splattering Reno with blood and brains. If Reno's drunkenness had clouded his judgment before, it was now being infused with shock and fear. Reno shouted, Mount up! Then shouted, Dismount! Showing he had totally lost his grip in the panic. His horse was plunging wildly. He was holding his colt in one hand, his face smeared with Bloody Knife's blood, and shouting, Any of you who wish to escape, follow me. The only option was a high bluff on the other side of the river. If they could make it to that bluff, they might have a chance, although their ammunition was already low. The problem was that the path through the woods to the river and beyond, which was the bluff, 
was full of Indians. Cavalrymen and scouts spurred their horses through what was literally a gauntlet of rifle fire, and the Indians were using Winchester repeating rifles. Some fell, some were hit, but hung on, and some made it to the river, which slowed them down almost to a stop, making it possible for the Indians to pursue them from behind, pulling them out of their saddles and tomahawking and knifing them until the river became a bloodbath. It was a scene from hell. There were moments of heroism as some writers rescued others, and moments where fear and panic and the need to survive replaced all common sense. The horses which made the other side of the river, underfed for most of the campaign thus far, struggled up the side of the bluff, and the men who had made it that far had to dismount and lead them up the sandy slope while bullets hit both men and horses and pockmarked the sand all around. By 4 p.m., 80 survivors of Reno's 130-man battalion had made it to the top of the bluff. They had to watch helplessly as Lakota tribesmen, old men, women, and children stripped and mutilated the wounded and dead. If you can imagine a culture in which children participated in torturing captives as well as defiling the dead, it was the Indian culture which is praised so highly by academia today. We've been honest here about exposing the sins of whites as well as Indians in this story. But there's no way you can compare the two cultures. Coast to coast, regardless of century, Indians were brutal sadists. The average cavalryman had to come to terms with the possibility of death on the field of battle, and he saved the last bullet for himself to avoid torture and scalping, which the Indians took to with relish. In the river, the naked and pale bodies of soldiers floated like dead fish. The cries of the wounded and stranded below floated up to the bluff, where one soldier asked Reno if he could send a detail to rescue the troopers who were still living. Reno, having given up any pretense of courage or leadership, responded by telling the soldier to go rescue them himself. Sergeant White, who witnessed this, later testified at Major Reno's court-martial that this had a discouraging effect upon the men. There was only one way that Reno could justify his actions that day. Instead of having been the first to retreat and not giving any orders to do so, he could say that he led them in an attack. This was patently false, but he stuck with the story at his court-martial in which he was exonerated, and for the rest of his life. We'll return to our show and the situations that Benteen and Custer found themselves in right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our story. Benteen had followed orders, albeit slowly, moving from bluff to bluff, trying to get a view of the Indian village, but after two hours, nothing was visible. He then ordered a right oblique, and his column began to move north and west back toward the main trail and what he hoped would be the pack train. He was in no rush, probably still stinging from Custer's orders to him that morning to slow down. He was getting ahead of Custer's column. He halted his column now at a watering hole and took much more than the required time to let his finicky mount drink. And he did not appear to be in a rush, although he and his men could now hear gunfire in the distance. Captain Thomas Weir of D Company, who was a friend of Custer, clearly showed his impatience at Benteen and started to lead D Company forward, at which point Benteen returned to the head of the column and ordered them to advance. Within the next hour, 
Benteen's column was reached by two messengers who had been sent by Custer. The first, a Sergeant Kniep, who reported that Custer had found the village, and the second, the trumpeter Martini, who handed Benteen the message to hurry and bring packs. Martini also relayed Custer's opinion that he had the Indians on the run, the exact word being skedaddling. Benteen pointed out to Martini that his horse, Martini's, had been shot and then questioned the orders to hurry and bring packs, meaning mules with ammo, and saying that there was no way he could hurry and bring the mules as well. So Benteen reasoned that if the Indians were indeed skedaddling or running, Custer would not need the packs as badly. He ordered a fast advance and his column headed west at a fast trot. As they approached the little bighorn, they ran into three crow scouts who kept repeating, Otosu, Otosu, meaning too many Sioux. And Benteen could now see smoke rising from the valley. Lieutenant Godfrey assumed this was caused by the burning of the villages, although it was actually the Indians setting fire to the woods to drive Reno's men out. But for a moment, the smoke in the valley cleared, and Benteen could see a dozen or so soldiers in the river trying to fend off eight to nine hundred warriors, and the stomach-churning realization hit him that something had gone very, very wrong. Within a half hour, Benteen, who was at the head of the column, was approached by Major Reno, who was riding toward him. He was breathing heavily and holding his hand in the air. For God's sake, Benteen, he panted, halt your command and help me. I've lost half my men. Benteen looked at Reno coolly and replied, where is Custer? And historians are still trying to answer that question. At least the question of what Custer was doing from the time he sent Martini away with the written plea for Pax, which was 3.30 p.m. until approximately 4.30 p.m. It was just after 3.30 that Reno's men had seen Custer waving his hat on the opposite side of the encampment and then saw him disappear behind a bluff. It's very likely that Custer saw Reno's attack and decided to try to take hostages from the village. But why that would take an hour and had no results, and why Custer did not advance to help Reno, catching the Indians between them, is not known. Something happened up there in the hills behind the Little Bighorn, but no one for sure knows what. In 1907, a photographer named Edward Curtis visited the Little Bighorn and interviewed three Crow scouts who claimed to have accompanied Custer. They gave Curtis an incredible tale. They said that Custer and his men watched the Reno battle unfold from a natural viewing platform on the opposite ridge. One of the two Crow scouts asked Custer why he was not charging down to the village to help Reno. Custer answered saying, No, let them fight. There will be plenty left for us to do. As Reno's battalion retreated in chaos, Custer waited. Only after he knew he had the huge village to himself did he descend from the ridge. Curtis couldn't believe the story. He questioned the crows again and again, but they told the same story. Their story contradicted the crow scout Curly's story. Curly had been with Custer, but was separated or deserted just before the massacre. Curly had said that these three crows now giving their story to Curtis were not telling the truth. Unknown to Curtis, Custer's striker, meaning the keeper of his horses, his wrangler, John Berkman, had been ordered by Custer to stay with the pack train when they reached the divide. Berkman had seen Curly riding with some Arikara scouts, driving captured Lakota ponies, away from all the action. 
so it's possible Curly wasn't there, and that the three Crow scouts had stayed with Custer, at least for a while. There was one trooper who was uniquely positioned to see what occurred between Reno's Valley fight and Custer's last stand, as that was then 22-year-old Private Peter Thompson. His testimony was so controversial that most historians don't believe it. As to his courage, no one doubted it. He had won the Medal of Honor for bravery during the Battle of the Little Bighorn and was attending the burial of an unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. in 1921, where he joined a gathering of Little Bighorn veterans telling of his experiences during the battle. But many of the veterans refused to believe him, and he got up and angrily walked out. Thompson had shared his story narrative with Walter Camp, who was an expert on the battle, in fact, having devoted most of his adult life to researching it. Thompson was a member of C Troop, who became separated when his horse became too exhausted to go any further, leaving Thompson on foot. He escaped several close encounters with Sioux warriors. He ran into another C Company soldier, a private named Watson, who was mounted, and they started down toward the river, with Thompson hanging on to the tail of Watson's horse. Then they saw a highly unusual sight. The Crow Scout Curly was leading a bound and struggling Lakota woman by a rawhide rope. Then, maybe fifty yards upriver, General Custer appeared, and seeing Curly, rode up to Curly and the Lakota woman. General Custer was mounted on his horse, Vic. No other men were with him. The two conversed, and Curly released the woman, who waved the knife at the two men, then crossed the river and disappeared into the village. It may have occurred. Both the Cheyenne and Lakota witnesses to the fights said that at least a portion of Custer's battalion made it to the banks of the Little Bighorn, that they had likely ridden down Medicine Trail coolly as a possible feint to see if they could draw the Sioux into an ambush. Or, maybe he was trying to draw them away from Reno. But there's every likelihood that by now Custer understood the strength of the opposition he was facing. He was also not going to be able to shield his troops using hostages. This was not Washita, and the Indians had learned about his tactics. Thompson wrote upon seeing Custer, It being a very hot day, Custer was in his shirt sleeves, his buckskin pants tucked into his boots, buckskin shirt fastened to the rear of his saddle, and a broad-brimmed cream-colored hat on his head, the brim of which was turned up the right side and fastened by a small hook and eye to its crown. This gave him the opportunity to sight his rifle while riding. His rifle lay horizontally in front of him. While riding, he leaned forward slightly. This was the appearance of Custer, as Thompson relayed, just one half hour before the fight commenced between Custer and the Sioux. Thompson and Watson would later join Benteen and Reno's camp. We're now back to the meeting between Benteen and Reno, where Reno's asking for help, and Benteen asks him, What happened to Custer? A question that Reno wasn't able to answer. Now Benteen is faced with a decision. He's holding orders to bring packs and reinforcements to Custer. He's also been informed by Reno that thousands of Indians are on the warpath and that they're looking for any and all cavalry to fight. If Benteen doesn't find a strong defensive position fast, they stand a good chance of being wiped out. And it wasn't Benteen's idea to split forces in the first place. They climb to the nearest ridge on Weir's Peak just as the Indians locate them. Then they began to move along the sides of a series of ridges until they reached what is today called Reno Hill. Benteen had seven companies now to work with, 
and arranged them in a loose arc around the perimeter. This was all done with constant firing from the attacking Sioux, whose forces were mounting as more and more of them came from every direction. Benteen had five companies defending the northern half of the entrenchment, with Moylan's A Company bridging the gap to the east and Benteen's H Company assigned to the hill on the south end. Clustered in the center, in a saucer-like depression, were the horses and mules, which were positioned in a way to screen the wounded who were being tended to by Dr. Porter, their only physician. Benteen was noticing the intense doggedness of Lieutenant Godfrey's K Company, which had spread out a skirmish line about 500 yards north of the entrenchment. His soldiers, many of whom had never seen battle before, were spaced about five yards apart. They were forced to retreat as the Indian attacks increased, giving up yards at a time, but slowly, while still maintaining their distance from each other. Finally, driven back to within 50 yards of the main fighting force, K Company sprinted back to cover without losing a man. For the next two hours, the Sioux kept up a steady attack, mounting a charge every 20 minutes or so, at which time the soldiers would rise to one knee and clear as many horses as they could. The surrounding hills, as well as the flats along the river, were literally covered with attacking Sioux and Cheyenne. One sustained charge up the bluff would have wiped out the entire brigade, but fortunately, that never materialized. By 9 p.m. it was becoming dark, the firing slowed down, and then stopped. The men were exhausted. Private Taylor of A Company walked down to the corral area and found Sergeant Henry Failer standing next to Major Reno. Private Taylor asked the sergeant, What are we going to do? Sit here or try to move? Reno answered, I'd like to know how the hell we're going to move. Given the sarcasm, Taylor ignored Reno and said to Failer, If we're going to stay, we ought to be making some sort of a barricade. Major Reno responded again. Yes, and Sergeant, that's a good idea. Set all the men you can to work right away. But the men were exhausted. But the men were exhausted. But an order was an order. And reluctantly, they fell to work building a barricade made of hardtack boxes, saddles, and dead horses. They also began to dig shallow rifle pits in the dirt with their forks, plates, and tin cups, heaping the dirt into small mounds that hopefully could stop a bullet. They all fell to with one exception, Benteen's H Company. Benteen later said that Reno had told him they were leaving, but that was a flimsy excuse. Benteen was just one of those people who was contrary to others, and probably because he felt he had a score to settle with somebody. His speed of molasses actions earlier in the day may or may not have contributed to Custer's demise, as well as Reno's loss of much of his command. Now his refusal to have his company help in defense of their position was worse. One of his lieutenants, James Bell, would tell a researcher years later that Benteen was a vindictive man and never took the interest in his command that was expected of him. He considered himself a better soldier than either Custer or Reno. Bell added, Benteen may not have been a good officer, but he was a first-rate fighter, and the next 24 hours would prove that. Join us next Sunday night for Part 3 of Custer's Last Stand as we join the remainder of the 7th Cavalry for one of the longest fighting sieges in the history of the West as the combined forces of Reno and Benteen 
try to defend their position against overwhelming odds. Then we'll try to piece together what happened to Custer's five companies using the model that most historians now agree upon as the likely story of what really happened. If you're enjoying our show, please do help a friend subscribe. We would appreciate that very much. And that's the number one way that we grow in the rankings. So when you help others to subscribe, you're doing us a huge favor, and we appreciate it very much. We also appreciate reviews, and we'll share new reviews next Sunday night. Everyone stay safe, and we'll see you then.